We are in part 100 of our 100 part series, and that is wrapping up today. This is 100 Cheerios for 100 weekends of being Jesus. All right, so I got my little my little Cheerio necklace that was made for me right here. And I know y'all think that this is immature. This matches my emotional identity right here. So I got my 100 Cheerios. So uh, because of the amount that I move around and I wave my arms, I will be removing this so as to not choke myself to death. Uh, so you all know that it's right here, okay? I need you to take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can begin... Part 100 of our series, and I entitled today's message, Ready to Roll. That what I'm hoping for is after all of this time, which we have logged more than 4,500 minutes of being Jesus. After we get through all of this of understanding what it is to be Jesus, that we would now be Jesus into our world. I would hope that everything that we learn, we implement I would hope that everything that we have ingested, we would then put to use into our community. I would hope that we have all been transformed by this series. Next week, when we get together, I will be launching out the brand new theme for this year. I'll be launching out our brand new series coming up, doing a couple topicals and then kicking off a couple different books of the Bible. So I don't want anyone to miss it. I sure hope that you're here so you can be part of this brand new era that we're moving forward in. But I do want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank up here with just a thought. Sometimes we read the Bible and we get discouraged because we misunderstand. We open up the Bible and we see things like you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this and you need to do that. But what you don't understand is the fill in the blank right here. God's calling is God's enabling. God's calling is God's enabling. In other words, he's not going to ask you to do something he's not going to equip you to do. In other words, it would be terrible parenting to punish your two-year-old for not driving well. You understand what I mean? He's a good parent. He would never do something like that. He's not going to ask you to do something. He's certainly not going to command you to do something that he will not enable you to do. Therefore, every time you read a command in scripture, understand that is a vision casting of saying, God will get me to the place where I can do that. I would hope that you read all those commands as encouragements because if he asks you to do it, he can build you up to the place to get you to do that. When you read, I want you to put off the old man. I want you to put off the old nature. I want you to get rid of the old garbage and put on new Christ likeness. That's a promise. When you read, I want you to be able to pray unceasingly. That means that's a promise. When you read, I want you to be able to control your tongue, that's a promise. Because if he told you you need to do it, he's going to make sure that you can do it. So please do not be discouraged in reading the word of God, but see it as vision casting. That if you cannot today, then he is actively in a place to get you to do it tomorrow. God's calling is God's enabling. He knows what you need to do and he knows how to get you there. As we close out this series, as I mentioned last week, we're gonna, we broke it into two pieces. Jesus had conversations and interactions with his disciples, both in the north and in the south. 
And he said similar information in both places. We have grabbed all of that and put it into one place, and that's what we will be covering today. So in order to clear up some confusion, let me tell you how the end seemed to have gone. When Jesus died, he died near what city? Do you remember? Jerusalem. The prophecy was that he would die just outside the gates of Jerusalem. Is that in the north or the south of Israel? It is in the south. I don't know how much geography you're familiar with, but Israel's not very big. And so in the Bible, it refers to it as the north and the south. The south is more the dry area. It was known as Judea. It was known as its capital city of Jerusalem. The upper portion was known as the Galilee area or the Samaria area or the north. Well, when you have these two splits out, Jesus died in the south, but he was from the north. All his boys, all the disciples, except for one, Judas, who's no longer with us, was all from the north. So they lived in the north, but they were visiting down south when Jesus was captured, when Jesus was on trial, when Jesus was crucified, and when Jesus rose again. Down south, while they were still there for a festival, he said, I'm alive. Then he told them a couple important pieces and said, boys, I need you to go up north and meet me there and I'll give you more instruction. So as a team, they all traveled back home north. When he was up there, he gave them some critical information and let them know they needed to meet him again down south. Now, why are we doing all the moving around? What is that all about? It gets confusing. Well, it's because they needed to move their home base from up north where they had always lived, down south. Well, you got to go home and get your gear and reset up down in the bottom. So they're all going to move back down to Jerusalem and launch their ministry, their brand new Christianity that they know down there. And that's where we pick up our story. All right. So we're going to go ahead and combine Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts today by blending it together in our final piece and throw those up on the screens. And it looks like this. And while Jesus came and was staying with them or literally eating with them, when they had come together, he said to them, now this is during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. For 40 days, Jesus came and went in visiting his people. That's a long time. It always seems to us like Jesus just came back from the dead and then all of a sudden, poof, he was gone. 40 days he interacted with his people. That's significant. At one point, he met with 500 of them at one time. That's over a month. That's almost a month and a half of visitation. During that time, he had a lot to say. We culminate that all into this message. But understand, he's going to recap. Guys, for the last three years, we've been together and I've been telling you stuff. You missed a lot of it. So let me just tell you the important highlights. And this is how he said it. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the Old Testament, he defines as the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. All of that must be fulfilled. My dad said so, so it's going to be that way. 
Then he opened their minds educationally and supernaturally to understand the scriptures and the deeper meaning there. And he said to them, thus it is written in multiple Old Testament passages that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, that's me, he said, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. All right, that's a lot. Let me begin by saying it this way, which sounds a little fancy, and then I'll break it out. The necessary result of Christ's death and resurrection is the proclamation of salvation. In other words, because of what Jesus did, everybody's got to know. Because of what he did, everybody has to know this. Why? Because they're in danger and because God made a way. So he said, since The Son of God has done all this extraordinary work. We must go out and tell everyone what he did. There is our part and there is his part. Because he didn't just do it as a show, he did it for effect. Our part is repentance. Now we get really kind of heavy on this whole repentance thing. Let me see if I can break it down and make it practical. When you come face to face with the fact that you're at odds with God, it requires you to do something about it, yeah? Now, if you know that you're not on the same page with God, that's not okay. So what do you do? Well, God makes it rather simple and practical. Here's what you do. You own it. There's no more wearing a mask. There's no more faking it. There's no more, no, I'm really a good person. Let me argue with God and try to convince him I'm really not as much of a jerk as he thinks I am. You know, right? You got to own it. So the first thing in repentance is that you own it. And you say, God, you're absolutely right. I am not okay with you. I've been living my own life and I haven't even acknowledged that you're that important. However, I am realizing now all of it is about you. You're the most important thing. I'm not, and I have violated you. That's not okay. So I'm sorry for doing that, and I would love to turn this boat around. Repentance means to make a U-turn. It means that you were headed this direction, which was selfishness and you, and now you want to do it his way, so we all turn around and we go the opposite direction. That's repentance. Does that seem unfair for God to ask? Or does that not seem practical, right? Hey, you're against me. How about you stop being against me? Oh, that's a good idea. All right. So when you turn the boat around, you say, Lord, I'd like to do it your way. That's repentance. So that's our side of it. What's his side of it? He meets us there with hilarity and joy, as Pastor Parnell says. He meets us there with the happiness. He meets us there with extravagant grace. And he says, I've been waiting for you to say those words. I love when you want to do it my way. I can't wait to shower you with forgiveness. I can't wait to extend my grace to you. And you now live consistently in my heart and I will live in yours. That's how the process works. Now that needs to be communicated to the entire world, does it not? Hmm. All right, let's keep talking about this. It says, Jesus said, and it 
All this should start being proclaimed from Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where they live now. I love Christianity being practical. I love the fact that God says, hey, start where you're at. Meaning we're going to get all into the Great Commission. There's all this go, blah, 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 blah. And we all talk about that. How about just starting where you live? Because here's the problem. The way that Jesus Christ has always set up his kingdom expansion is that it begins with your heart, it emanates through your home, and it goes out into the world. Now, why is that important to remind us about? Because I know an awful lot of Christians who are brilliant at ministering to strangers and they're psychos at home. Okay, so here's my point. It is easy to wear a temporary mask with people you don't know. It's easy to feign transformation if people don't really know you. It's impossible to feign transformation at home because everyone sees right through you. So if true transformation has occurred, your home life will know it first and know it best. That means your marriage. If you are excellent at leading a men's Bible study and your marriage is terrible, we have a problem. If it means it also implements or affects your parenting. So if you are an absentee parent because you're always engaging with other people about the gospel, we have a problem. That Jesus Christ said it must always emanate out first in your heart, then into your family, and then out into your society. So let, what is your Jerusalem? You need to begin with where you're at. I, and once again, God's always practical. Remember when he tells Moses, hey, I want you to do that whole Yul Brenner, let my people go thing, right? Remember that. Okay, well, before we do that, I need you to do some signs. And Moses goes, they're not going to believe me. How are you going to do any signs? And remember what God said? What's in your hand? Well, I don't know. I have a stick. Hey, let's use a stick. That's God. We always think that we need something fancy to do ministry. No, you don't. You just need what's in your hand. You just need what's practical. You just need, you know, you're going, well, I'm not super gifted. Well, I guess God's going to have to get more glory then, huh? Right? So just start with what you have. Anyway, we'll keep talking about that a little bit more. So you begin from Jerusalem and then take a look at this. You are witnesses of these things. You live it. Men, women that were with Jesus at the time, he's probably talking to about 120 of them. Men, women, you already know the story. You're already witnesses. Whether or not you use it well or not, you're still witnesses. You were there. But you always, here's the deal. If we are driving down the road and we see an accident, you're a witness. Now, whether or not you ever talk to the police about it or take the stand or anything else, you're a witness of it. There's nothing you can do to change that. How you utilize your testimony is a different ballgame, but you have been witnesses. But you can only talk about what you really know. You're not allowed to go on the stand in a court of law and talk about something you heard. You can only talk about what you really know. And so let me ask you this. Do you have anything to share? Because if you never interacted with Jesus, you might want to keep your mouth shut about Jesus. In other words, if you do have an experience with the Lord, 
talk about what you do know. And you go, well, Lance, I don't, I don't have all the answers. Nobody ever said you had to be brilliant. Nobody ever said you had to know all the answers. No one knows all the answers. How about just talking about what you do know? Hey, I used to be like this. I'm learning to become like this. That's a testimony. You didn't say you've arrived. You didn't say you got a seminary degree. You didn't say anything else. You were just honest about Jesus. I used to feel all this guilt and now I feel free. That's a testimony. That's legit, right? So we are witnesses. God has interacted with our life. Can we please just share that without getting fancy? All right, we keep moving forward. Now they realize he's talking about all this incredible stuff. So they assume, oh, it sounds like the end of the world. Let's ask him about that. So they asked him, Lord, master, will you at this time, meaning right now, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what do they mean? Hey, are you going to bring your kingdom from heaven here to earth and make Israel the glorious, amazing nation it should have always been? Are you going to reign from Jerusalem and everyone in the world is going to go, wow, look at Israel. Are we going to finally get the attention that we deserve and rule the entire earth? What do you think Jesus should have said to that? He should have said, uh, no. But he didn't. He didn't say no. Why? Because the answer isn't no. The answer is kinda. Whenever the answer's kinda, you gotta give a little more detail. So here's what he says. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times... That's chronos. It's not for you to know the exact timeline of how that's going to go down, nor is it your right to know the seasons. That's kairos, nor to know the key moments on how it's going to go down. All of that is locked down with my dad that the father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, the father hasn't even told me when I'm coming back. So he's certainly not going to tell you. That's all on lockdown. So if you want to know when the end of the world is, and that's your question, then the answer is no, that's not happening right now. But notice he doesn't stop there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the kinda. Because here's what he is going to say. My friends, my children, my followers. Oh, I'm bringing the kingdom. Oh, heaven is coming to earth. And it is a kingdom now, but not yet. Now, I got more that I'm going to bring. And when I'm talking about bringing the full heat, when I'm talking about dropping the hammer of judgment, that is all in the future. But make no mistake, I'm coming. And when I send the Holy Spirit, I am going global. I'm going worldwide. I'm going to press in on the enemy so much, it's going to make him squirm. I'm going to impact my people. I'm going to empower my people. I'm going to indwell my people so that the enemy used to worry about me being in Israel. Now he's got to worry about me being everywhere. Amen? And I'm going to work through my people like my body. And they're going to carry out the exact same stuff. If I used to cast out demons in Jerusalem, now I can cast out demons in South Korea. If I was before a powerful miracle worker here, now I'm going to be a miracle worker everywhere. Because my salt and light are spread all over the world. So am I coming? Yeah, I'm coming. 
Am I bringing my kingdom? Yes, I am. Is it how you want it? No, it is not. So the answer is kind of. Make sense? The most important part of that sentence is all authority in heaven and on earth, on earth has been given to me. Why is that so important? Because as his children, as his ambassadors, as his servants, as his followers, and as his soldiers, we as the Christian church operate out of his authority. We get to walk freely wherever he owns. What do you think all means in Greek? All, praise the Lord. If he owns heaven and earth, where do we have freedom to walk? Heaven and earth. In other words, if Jesus has been given it all and we are one with him, we have access to all that he does and all of his resources. That's awesome. Are we utilizing it? No, I do not think we are. However, it is available to us. Why is that so important? Well, let me take it back a little bit. Do you remember that someone else came and offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Do you remember that? Uh, in the wilderness, Jesus was fasting and he was tempted by the devil. And the devil said, hey, here's the deal. I know you don't want to do the cross thing. This is going to be brutal. It's going to be nasty. Here's the deal. I'll give you a shortcut. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you only bow down before me. So if we become a team, of course, I want to be the leader, but if we become a team, I'll give you all that. You don't have to do the cross. And Jesus said, no. Why? Because he knew that the temptation of a shortcut was to give him less than the father would ever give him. Why? Because Satan could have gave him the kingdoms of the earth, but God always owns heaven. When he did it God's way, he got heaven and earth put together, but it meant that he had to die to himself and live for his father. Is that not a message for us? Have you ever been tempted to settle for less? Come on, not every day? I believe that one of Satan's greatest temptations is always the shortcut. It's always, hey, you don't have to go the tough road. Go the easy road. I'll give you less. It'll cost you dearly, but hey, you get it now. At some point, we have to line up with Jesus and say, no, thank you. I'd rather have the better, and I'd rather go the longer route, and I'd rather have the pain if it will allow my king to be glorified. You understand what I mean? All right, good. Four of you do. Praise the Lord. <laughs> he said, since I own everything, I want you to do something for me. And this is called the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all the world... And proclaim the gospel to the whole creation and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the singular name of a triune God, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you probably heard 8 million messages on the Great Commission. Let me see if I can breathe some life into it and bring in some new ideas. First of all, I need to talk about Luke's addition to the Great Commission. Uh, normally, we grab Matthew's. Matthew does the one that we're most familiar with, but Luke adds in this phrase, I want you to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. Why should we proclaim good news to the whole creation? Because people are still dying. If you were on a cruise ship and you learned 
that there was a hole in the hole at the bottom of the boat and you opted to only tell two people, you have selectively chosen who should live and who should die. Yes? Because you're the only one with the information. If people don't have time to react, then the flooding is going to take them over. Therefore, in essence, you pick. Do you think that Christianity is one of many options? Do you think that there's a whole bunch of ways to get to heaven? Are you sure? Because we live like it. Here's why. If you truly believed it's the only way and you happen to have that information and you're not sharing it with anyone else, that means that you don't care if they die and go to hell anyway. Right? Because if it is the only option, now if it's one of many options, then who cares whether you share it or not? I'm sure they'll find it out. But what if there is only one way, which I believe? The Bible says that there is no way to the Father but by Jesus Christ. So if there is only one way and you happen to know that information and know that people are at risk and you choose not to share it with them, you are ultimately making a determination on their worth. Well, that's messed up, right? So he said, I want you to go out and proclaim the good news. What's intriguing is that somehow we as Christians have made evangelism not good news. Shouldn't we be bringing out here's the message that you need to bring out because I think most of us freeze up We don't want to share our faith because we don't know the whole thing We're afraid they're going to ask us a question. We don't have the answer to so let me break down all those walls Here's what the bible says I want you to go out and I want you to tell people That god has made a way For them to be rescued Now that's all you need to know now you're gonna go. No, no, no. There's a bunch more to it. Well, hold on when you tell people, tell them what you know, and if you don't know, go back and get more information and then bring it to them. Because when we freeze up and we don't share anything because we're afraid we can't share everything, that's not blessing anyone. When you go out, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lower all your expectations and I want you to do this. Hey, do you know Jesus Christ? What? Now, if you don't want to start even with that one, that one even sounds weird. If you want to start out and go, hey, you know what I learned recently at church is that God's made a way for us to be okay. Well, tell me more about that. Well, I'd love to. I don't know anything else. <laughs> Do you understand that's still okay? Here's the deal. You're not supposed to have all the answers. You're allowed to start the conversation and go, I only know a little bit, but I can't wait till I know more. And then I'll bring that more to you too. It's okay if someone goes, well, but how does that work? And you go, I'm not sure. It's a God thing. You're not supposed to always be sure. You understand? Let's lower our expectations and quit thinking we have to be brilliant on everything. Just be you. And say, I know a little bit, I know enough to where it transformed my life. And I hope that it would transform yours. Anyway, let, let's keep moving on. We're running out of time here. Go therefore, and we're familiar with this part, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Do you understand that there is only one command there? And there's three participles in Greek. Why is that important? Because the one command is make disciples. We keep looking and going, oh, the other ones are commands. No, they're not. They're ways to fulfill the command. The command is make disciples. So, for example, at Bridgeway, we are a disciple-making church because of this premise. The idea is that if we feed you and we equip you, you are 24-7 in an evangelistic pattern and sharing it with the world. That's the mode of our church. All right. 
We are to make disciples. That's the command. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, there's, you got to go, you got to teach, you got to baptize. All right, cool. How do we do that? Well, here's what's intriguing. The phrase go, a lot of people have made a big deal about it. Well, there's a command that the Bible says go. Is it a command? It is not in Greek. Now, later on, you're going to find out practically it's a command. But here's what's interesting. The way it's written in Greek is as you are going, make disciples. In other words, if we make it a command to go, then how do you ever minister to your home? That's not the command. The command isn't that you have to go. It's saying that you will tend to go. And as you're going, make disciples. So you make disciples at home. You make disciples at Walmart. You make disciples at school. You make disciples at work. You make disciples abroad. Wherever you go, make disciples. Now, do we need to be strategic about global evangelism? Yes, but the command is as you are going, make disciples everywhere. And it talks about you need to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A couple of side notes on that. Number one, if Jesus never claimed to be God, how in the world would he say that phrase? He just put himself in the triune God, in the middle. He's in between the Father and the Holy Spirit. And you think that he didn't know that he's deity? Come on, that's ridiculous. He says, I'm God. I'm the little white in the Oreo. We got a little father chocolate, a little Holy Spirit chocolate, a little white Jesus in the middle. He would never say that if he wasn't God. So clearly he knows that he's God. And he says, I want you to baptize them. And we're going to get into this whole concept of baptism uh, here in a moment. But then he says this, I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you. Uh, in other words, just like you did the Old Testament commandments, I want you to look at what I say to you and I want you to understand this is how I want you to do it. We are living a new way. These are new family rules. Let's do it like that. All right. And he moves on. He says, because whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay. That little line right there has caused an awful lot of concern. Why? Because on the surface, it looks like baptism is necessary for salvation. Because when you read it, you look at it like it's an and. Let's be very careful with that because here's how you're reading it in your mind. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, period. Oops, you messed up the sentence. That's not a period. So whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And then the second part of the sentence is supposed to reemphasize the point of the first part of the sentence. What does the second part say? But whoever does not believe, no mention of baptism will be condemned. So what's the important part of the first part of the sentence? Belief. It is not baptism. Then why is it in there? Because in their culture, as you were being trained up to believe and prepare your heart for God to rescue you, baptism was a picture, a tangible picture of what needed to go on in your heart. They would immediately say, hey, do you need to be cleansed? Are you at a place where you understand that you're ready to own up to your sin? Yes, I am. All right. I'm going to take you and I'm going to get baptized. Now, here's what's going on internally. You're going down and in a sense, you're dying to self and all of your sin is going underneath Jesus. And when you rise back up, you are washed clean. And because no one knows what's going on in my heart, you can't see that I'm rescued. You can't see that I'm converted. You can't see that I'm cleansed. So we need some type of word picture to understand what's going on inside. That's baptism. Baptism. 
They did that all in one big swoop. So they considered it kind of a partner deal. But the baptism was not the part of salvation. There's only one necessary part of salvation. We are saved by faith, right? By grace through faith, not by works, not by what we did, lest any man should boast, right? We all know that. Okay. So it says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. All right. So we're only held accountable to our belief or our faith or our trust or our, how we live that out. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What's so cool about that line is that Matthew's gospel begins with the incarnation, God becoming man. And when he refers to Jesus, he says, and we will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Isn't it neat that it begins with God with us and ends with, and God will never leave us. God will always be with us. And God is not okay ever being distant from us. What an incredible God that we serve that goes to all lengths to make sure he is with his people at all times. He will actually take on humanity and be with us and ever after will never leave us. That's pretty awesome. We serve a great God. And behold, he said, I am sending the promise of the father of my father upon you. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John, the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay. This is where everybody starts getting confused. The phrase baptism has really undergone a lot of chaos. Let me make it very, very simple because here's what it sounds like. What happens is it starts linking water baptism with the Holy Spirit's baptism and we all get into these debates. So man, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? I don't know. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Man, because if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's like two kinds of Christians. There's like super legit Christian and then there's like non-legit Christian, right? And then here's the deal. The other thing is about water baptism and everything. So did you get baptized in water? Because I think that might be necessary for salvation. So I don't even know what it means. But here's the deal. Um, so, okay, when you look in the book of Acts, it's a transitionary book and it makes it even messier. You have the same people getting multiple empowerments, endowments. It looks like multiple baptisms. How does that work? Let's, let's just make it simple. All right. Baptism has two meanings and that's why it gets a little confusing. Two meanings, identification and immersion. Those are the only meanings for baptism. The legit original interpretation of baptism means to be immersed. It means if you have a piece of clothing and shove it into dye, you have to stick it all the way under and pull it back out and it looks a different color. So if we're going to be technical on how to be water baptized, it's by immersion, which isn't like a little Febreze on you. That may be legit spiritually, but understand if we're trying to talk about what it meant, it meant if I do not pull you back up, you will drown. Understand? That's what immersion means. It means shove your head underwater and pull you back up. Now you can't always have that kind of water sprinklings, legit, all that. Okay, cool. We're into all that. Here's the point. Immersion means going under, but it also means identification. 
Identification means you are now on the same team. You are now part of each other. You are now fused together. You are now identified as one unit. Now, let me explain. When you get water baptized, the point is a word picture of going under and coming back up. When you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, it is identification with. Here's the reason why I want to point this out. There is one baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are multiple empowerments. Why? Well, let me explain this. The Bible says that when you receive Jesus Christ, God comes to dwell within you. I don't know if you knew this, but there's three parts, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons of the Godhead, they actually all indwell you. You cannot be saved without having the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Therefore, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to talk about baptism, meaning identification with, you're not even a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. So upon conversion, every believer receives the identification of the Holy Spirit. So what bothers me is how much we keep mixing up terms. Because if you look in the book of Acts, that same team that's already saved keeps getting hit by the Holy Spirit and receiving more stuff. What's that? That's called empowerment to do the tough stuff. Is that important? Seems to be to God. Why? Because God's calling is God's enabling. When he asks you to do something radical, he's going to equip you to do it. Therefore, the Holy Spirit goes, dude, I got more for you. I have all kinds of stuff for you. Man, if you need to go out there, let's say, for example, somebody comes in with a gun and says, I'm going to put a gun to your head. Will you deny Jesus Christ? Do we not at that moment need empowerment from the Holy Spirit? The Bible actually says when you are put on trial to his disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will come in and answer for you. We need that. Well, if God's going to have you do extreme stuff, he's going to empower you with extreme power in order to get it done. Well, the disciples in the early church, they were doing a lot of incredible stuff. What bothers me is a lot of us want more power to do nothing. I would suggest to you that if we need more power, he can give us more power. We just need to be utilizing it and putting it to work. That was a rebuke. All right, moving on. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power. That seems to suggest that it's not a might. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So if the Holy Spirit's upon you, I think that we're not even utilizing the stuff that God has already given us. I think that we have a lot of that and we're just not doing anything with it. All right. But then it says and you will be my witnesses. Do you understand that God is witnessing through you that you're not witnessing? Because we get that mixed up in our minds. One of the reasons we don't like sharing our faith is because we think we're supposed to come up with some brilliant way to witness to somebody. But that's not really what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is witnessing through us, which means he comes up with the brilliant ideas. So we go out there and we're like, man, how can I argue this person? Hold on. Is that what God said? Because God's going to do stuff through you. You would never even imagine, nor would you sign up for. Here's why you think, and I think in our minds, Hey, I need to minister to that person at work. They're really hard hearted. I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe I will do this. 
I'll do something nice for them. All right, that's very sweet and it's very kind. You know what God may end up doing? God may end up moving through the fact that you have cancer. Because God will witness through you. And they have to observe and watch God move through difficulty. He's witnessing. And I know that's not what you want. But understand, he knows how to do it better. Understand that he knows how to change hearts. He knows what it means for you to actually own your message. He knows, I'll tell you this, the word for witness and the word for martyr is the same word. Why? Because when you're testifying, the ultimate exclamation point you can put on your message is I'm willing to die for my faith. When all the disciples were murdered except for one of them. I bet you they didn't want to sign up for that either. But what they did say, Lord, I could go out and I could minister to thousands of people. You know what? I bet you could. You know what would actually minister to millions? You being slaughtered for my name. I think I can get more mileage from your death than your life. I think one of the heart of Christianity pieces is trying to be okay with that. Ah, that's a tough one, right? That's not how we like it. Just give me another book on evangelism. Hmm. All right. It says that we would move concentrically out from Jerusalem, where we begin, to Judea, Samaria, which is the north and south of Israel, and then outside of Israel. In their mind, the end of the earth, in Greek, it does not have an S. It's to the end of the earth. They thought the world was flat. To the end of the earth, so God worked with them in their limited knowledge, like he always has to do with us, right? Because there's stuff that we're reading in the Bible, we're like, yep, that's totally legit. And then 2,000 years from now, if, if Jesus tarries, we're going to be like, that's not how it really is. Okay, whatever. He's working with kind of lacking people. So he gives us sweet conversations that we can understand. So the end of the earth to them was Rome. So the book of Acts emanates out from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and ends in Rome. All right, fantastic. It says, now we get to the controversial part, right? Praise the Lord. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Wow, how come we're not seeing more of that? What is he really trying to say? Is he trying to say that we need to bring snake handling back into the church? I just saw a news article that they were catching all these 13-foot Burmese pythons in Florida. Y'all see that? They caught a whole bunch of them. That's why we live in California. There's some snake handling for you. It's not talking about snake handling at all. Here's, here's what it's saying. And by the way, a lot of you would go, hold on, Lance. We're now in Mark chapter 16. The real book of Mark ended at verse 8 that Mark wrote. And I'm going to say, I, I would agree with you. You're absolutely right. So why do we have this piece in here? A couple reasons. Number one, it's because whoever added that in right afterwards, and it's probably not Mark, was trying to bring in clarification on the job of the church. And the early church grabbed it and said, that wasn't Mark, but that is legit. And they kept it going and kept it going and say, no, it's not in the ancient manuscripts, but that editor put that in there so that we would know more about the call of the church. We have a lot of stuff to do. Here's the other thing. There's no new information in there. So if you go, no, that's bogus, you're actually saying other parts of scripture are bogus. All that stuff has been said somewhere else. Let me ask you this. Does this stuff, stuff still go on? 
because there's a cessationist view that says after the apostolic era, that stuff ended. All the fancy supernatural stuff stopped. There's a continuation view that says that it's still going. I'm a continuation guy. I believe it absolutely should go on. We can all debate on what way it should go and how much it should go. But the fact that it still goes on, I don't understand why Paul would have written letters on how to handle the supernatural if the supernatural was going to shut down right after he dies. That's silly. There's not one verse in the Bible that says that it's going to shut down. All right, so if it's still going on, the church has some jobs to do. Let me ask you this. Does the church still have the authority of Jesus Christ to cast out demons? Yeah, we do. Why? Because Jesus is still on the throne. We're still his body. We're still his people. Do we still have the ability to pray for healing? Yes, we do. So you go, well, what's the whole snake thing, the poison thing? That's not in the Bible. Yeah, it is. Here's why. Paul is on the island of Malta ministering. He didn't want to be there. And apparently he's such a stud. He grabbed so much firewood. He didn't know there was a snakey in his pile. You understand what I'm saying? There's a snake in the wood pile. When he starts to put it on the fire, a snake comes out and bites him in the hand. And it's a poisonous viper. It says it's dangling from his hand and he shakes it off into the fire. And they all wait for him to blow it up and die. But he doesn't. Why? Because God said no. All this is saying is that when you're on God's team doing God's will, nobody gets to shut you down. It doesn't matter who tries to kill you. It doesn't matter whether it's a snake. It doesn't matter whether or not in persecution you're forced to drink poison. It doesn't matter whether or not you're being burned to the stake. He'll shut the fire off if it's not your time. Now, there are times when he goes, and it's time. And there's times that he says it's not. Do you know how many people personally have told me they tried to take their own life and the gun jammed? Is everyone really that poor at firing a firearm? No. Why? God rescued you. All this is saying is that God protects his own. And when we go out into the world and carry out his tasks, he's with us. Even to the end of the world. Let's finish this out. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he led them out as far as a half mile away to Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Blessing means saying good things about them, encouraging people. And then you can do a prophetic blessing saying, Father, may this be true in their lives moving forward. I do that type of prophetic blessing over our babies in baby dedication, our children, is I say, Lord, may this be true, whether you baked it into them already or not. May this be real because it would honor your heart, Lord. Jesus was blessing them. It said, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up, lifted up, taken up into heaven. And a cloud took him out of their sight and he sat down at the right hand of God. What's the cloud thing about? Is it really kind of the end of the show? Da, 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 right. And then the clouds come by and he's like, that's it, folks. Right. No, it's, it's not a cumulus cloud. It's the Shekinah glory of God. It's the same cloud that was on Mount Sinai, the same cloud that covered over the tabernacle. It's the same cloud that led Israel in the desert. This is the manifestation of the power and glory of God. And watch this. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. If someone just suddenly shows up, who are they usually? Angels. 
And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Meaning that's weird. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. In that same glorious manifestation cloud, so too when he comes back to bring righteousness on the earth, he's going to show up the same way. And they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, a Sabbath day's journey away, with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Do you understand that the ascension of Jesus into heaven, sitting down at the right hand of God, is significant? It means a couple things. Number one, it means he's sitting down at the power and authority of the Father, reigning over his kingdom. That's good for us. He's also interceding for us and shielding us and being our high priest. He's still doing a lot of stuff, but as far as the heavy lifting, he sat down because he's done. It's been accomplished. It also means that we teach a bodily resurrection. If it wasn't about a bodily resurrection, Jesus Christ would have just slumped down and his spirit would have been released. That didn't happen. His whole body went up. It also teaches that he's there waiting for us. When you die, you are not going to an unpopulated heaven. You are going to his side. When we die as children of God, heaven is already populated with our favorite person. And that's Jesus. And he's preparing a place for us that we would be welcomed. I just need us to understand the power of our Jesus being in heaven. Notice what that did for the disciples. When he first met them as the resurrected Lord, he met them in a locked room for fear of the Jews twice. Now it says they went into the temple every day right under the authority's nose and didn't care. How did they go from fear to power? Jesus became more real. Hmm. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Bible says, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let me make one thing very clear. Whenever a miracle occurs in our midst, who does the actual miracle? God. Whose power is it? God. Even though it comes to a person, who is it? God. It is always God and not a person. Now he moves through us and there are some people more gifted and anointed that God wants to move through them more in that way. But understand it is not a person. It is always God. It says as a close out, Luke said this in the first book, O Theophilus, I, Luke, have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And then John jumps in. This, John, is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Last passage. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me close with this phrase. The purpose of the word of God is transformation, not information. The purpose of the word of God is transformation, not information. We are not historians. We are God chasers. What's the point? I appreciate the fact that there are some of you that are so able to process and so intelligent that you can tell my message back to me. There's some of you that can take my message and take it 30 yards further down the field. 
But if all of you know how to get around in the Bible, but do not live out the Bible, we have failed. We are not here to glean knowledge. We are here to be transformed and to live out what Jesus put in us. It is our task that when we leave this place, we are on. You must use every bit of what you hear. Every time you gain more truth about scripture, blessed is the man who not only hears the word, but does the word. We are to leave here as changed people. So whatever you heard that God ministered to your spirit, whatever you heard that somehow resonated and rang true for you, live that out today. Because if we simply get smarter, the world stays the same. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for walking us through your word. Thank you, Lord, for showing us an amazing example, Jesus, on how we ought to live according to the Father's will. May we live out that life. May we emerge from here to impact as salt and light, as the body of Christ, bringing about the manifestation of the kingdom. That, God, we would use everything you baked in us to change the lives of those outside. We know it's always you. We know that you are the great one, the mighty one, the one on the throne. We know that the only hope we have for our society is Jesus Christ. So we need to get out there, Lord, and would you give us the empowerment, the discernment, the understanding of how to give our testimony, of how to tell people what happened to us without fear of getting it wrong. God, would you allow us to practically and tangibly love on people? Would you allow us to go out with the authority of the kingdom to pray for people? Would you allow us to go out and share all that you've given us that other people might not die but live? You are glorious. Your word is good news. Bring it afresh to our minds that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week. Our prayer team is up here for you.